welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. My name is Niall Boyce. I am the editor of the Lancet Psychiatry. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about prescription drug misuse. Now, this is a big problem at the moment. It's big news. If you're listening to this podcast around the time it's recorded, which is uh, September 2019, you'll have seen in the papers recently about the settlement with Purdue Pharma. But whatever happens in court, the problem remains in the clinics and the homes of many, many Americans and, of course, many more people worldwide. Now, when the media focuses on prescription drug misuse, it often talks about older individuals. But what about young people? Well, I'm joined today by Professor Sean McCabe of the University of Michigan uh, to talk about a paper he's just published with his co-authors, uh, Philip Valise, Kyra Dickinson, Ty Shepis, and John Schulenberg. And this paper is funded by the NIH. It's called Trajectories of Prescription Drug Misuse During the Transition from Late Adolescence into Adulthood in the USA, a National Longitudinal Multi-Cohort Study. Hello, Sean. Hi there. So... We know that uh, younger people, the sort of age group you're talking here, people aged 18 to 35, especially at the younger end of that spectrum, they tend to take risks, they tend to experiment, uh, among other things, with um, illicit substances. Isn't this uh, prescription drug use just something which they'll, they'll do and they'll, they'll grow out of? Well, for years, uh, we know that most young people who use prescription medications actually use them appropriately, but when it comes to using them on their own, we know that uh, these medications have very high addiction potential, so some of the patterns associated with prescription drug misuse looks very different than uh, other substances of of abuse. And we know that, uh, in this case, adolescents, uh, we, we still have over 17 million people in the United States that have misused their prescription medications. And the most prevalent ages uh, that engages in misuse are older adolescents and young adults. So that, that's where the concern comes in is these are, these are medications that are, you know, commonly uh, prescribed for ADHD like stimulants and opioids for pain relief. Uh, sedative and tranquilizers for treating sleep and anxiety disorders. And and some people uh, do experiment with them and cease use, but there is a fair number of people uh, that we showed in this study as well as our other work uh, that develops problems, and they develop them fairly quickly. So these substances we're talking about, these prescription drugs, they are actually being prescribed. So doctors are writing prescriptions and giving them to these uh, these young people. That's correct. The, in the study that we, uh, the particular behavior we looked at, we looked at uh, prescription drug misuse, and it was defined as people using them without a doctor's orders. But these are medications that when they're prescribed, uh, they are prescribed for uh, disorders such as ADHD, uh, pain management, sedatives and uh, tranquilizers used for sleep and anxiety disorders. So they are medications, and when they're used appropriately, they can help people overcome, you know, very debilitating disorders and go on to do, you know, great things with their lives. But on the other hand, you know, the great paradox of prescription drugs is they can also be misused, and uh, people, you know, can get into trouble very quickly with them. Uh, when, especially when they use them on their own without any type of medical supervision uh, or help from a health professional, and they can get into real trouble. And uh, oftentimes, I mean, I've, I have a clinical background, so I've, 
I've seen both sides of it. You know, I've seen the young person, you know, be able to achieve things that they wouldn't have been able to achieve with some of these medications. And then on the flip side, I've seen people, you know, get into trouble and, uh, and ultimately die uh, from, from misusing these medications. And uh, that's really what our research tries to focus on is identifying the, the real problem patterns. Okay, so to identify these problem patterns, you uh, did a, a national longitudinal study. And can you tell me a little bit about how you went about this? Where did you get the individuals you studied in, in your paper? Where did you get them from? So we used a longitudinal data set uh, from the Monitoring the Future study. It's uh, conducted here at the University of Michigan at the Institute for Social Research. Uh, and we used uh, data from the same individuals, and the data was collected starting at about the age of 18, 17, 18 years old, uh, when these people were uh, seniors in high school, which in the U.S. is 12th grade and uh, usually referred to as level 13 in, in the U.K. And they were followed uh, for 17 years consecutively, these same individuals, until the age of, of 35. So it really is a pretty incredible data set uh, with multiple cohorts of individuals followed over time uh, for 17 years. And this data on uh, the, the drugs which they were using and the frequency, that is self-reported? It is self-reported. Okay. Uh, now, now, clearly, you know, with, with all of these studies, there is a bit of a trade-off between the large numbers which you can get with the, these sorts of survey, survey data and then the, the limitations of self-report. But you have confidence that what uh, was being reported uh, by these individuals was more or less reflective of reality. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, we, we do have, uh, these are measures that have been validated in the past. Uh, by uh, in monitoring the future, and we know that when certain conditions are in place, that uh, these students will uh, report accurately uh, if they're given a confidential place uh, to, to fill out the surveys uh, and all of those uh, conditions that, that help people respond more reliably and valid uh, were in place for this study. Okay, now if I look at the paper, it says that you identified five trajectories. Now, for, for the listener, can you tell me exactly what you mean by, by a trajectory of drug misuse? Sure. Yeah, we use the term trajectory, but someone can also think about it as a, a pattern. Basically, what is their mis, what does somebody's misuse look like over a 17-year period? Some people might have a, a, a pattern or, or trajectory of use that, or misuse that looks like uh, very early experimentation, and then uh, they kind of taper off uh, over the next few years. And uh, currently, most national research really focuses on snapshots. And so this data takes those snapshots and uh, looks at them over time to see whether people increase, decrease, uh, and in particular, at what ages do they uh, have their peak misuse and what that means over time. So what you found was that you had these five groups. So you had one which is rare or no misuse at any age. And then you have the different uh, peak ages. So there's 18 years, 19 to 20 years, 23 to 24, and then really quite late, uh, 27 to 28. Now, which of these groups did you uh, find, w would you term the most problematic group in terms of their, their substance use? Well, it was interesting. We, we actually also detected one uh, much later peak group with the sedative uh, tranquilizers, and uh, they peaked even later. They peaked uh, in, the, in their 30s, 
uh, one of the patterns, and that was associated with uh, very high rates of substance use disorders. Uh, and so we, we uh, the, the group that was most uh, concerning, I would say, is uh, are actually the adolescents who uh, engaged in multiple uh, multiple classes or misused multiple prescription drug uh, classes. And we found there was about 44% of those. And, and they were not actually represented in the, in the five patterns, uh, but they were, we looked at that uh, pattern in the paper uh, and talked about it in the paper, uh, and they were at particularly high risk. And, in, and of the five patterns that we identified, it was the later peak trajectories or patterns that we found that had the highest rates of substance use disorders. So if we think about that and we try to make sense of that, it, it could mean, and, and this is something that we speculated about in the paper, the earlier misuse could be more experimental, and uh, the later or you know middle age misuse could could actually be about treating symptoms that people are trying to handle on their own. Uh, it could be for disorders, or it could be for uh, a symptom that they're really struggling with, say lower back pain, uh, say sore shoulder or they're having a lot of anxiety, they have more stress associated with their job. And so it really was those later groups that we saw uh, develop uh, some of the highest uh, substance use related problems. Uh, and when I say, when I say older, uh, I'm talking about later 20s and, and 30s, which really in the grand scheme of things is, is not that old, but uh, we're taking the same sample and we're following them uh, even later currently. And so we're gonna follow these folks uh, as, as they get even older. And there's something which is a little bit worrying if your speculation is correct. Because if you're saying that these individuals are um, falling into these patterns of substance use because of chronic health problems, then that's something for individual physicians who are prescribing medications to really worry about. So, you know, when we've talked about prescribing medications, when you're taught at a medical school as a, a junior doctor, you're, you're taught about the adverse events and you weigh up the risks and, and, and the benefits of treatment. But the risk of um, addiction and abuse potential is maybe something which isn't emphasized enough in medical education. Uh, and so, you know, it, it strikes me that maybe your findings have, have the potential to, to change that bit of, of medical training and practice, to just change the way that we think about what we're writing on the prescription pad. Well, we hope so. We, we hope these types of studies uh, don't only change uh, uh, medical education, but also change for all health professionals. I mean, you have nurses, social workers, pharmacists, dentists. You have a lot of people that have hands-on contact uh, with these individuals. And, and I think one has to take into account the motive behind the misuse. And what we do know is that for each of these classes, when people misuse uh, or decide to use them on their own. They're typically using them for a reason that is closely linked to why these medications are prescribed. So for stimulants, a lot of people will misuse them for cognitive enhancement or to uh, improve their alertness. Opioids they'll use for uh, pain management on their own uh, to, to try to treat some of the injuries uh, or, or pain as they get older. And then anxiety and sleep medications uh, oftentimes are misused for those exact reasons. And so people are really trying to take matters into their own hands. And, and what this paper 
uh, really attempts to do is it, it, is it shows uh, what happens when people take matters into their own hands. And, and oftentimes the solution isn't just on the addiction side, it's also there might be some underlying symptoms or, or uh, conditions that these people have where they're going to need more than just uh, substance use uh, attention. They're also going to need attention to treat some of these underlying uh, problems that they tried to start off on their own and, and help treat. And looking at the risk group you find, so I'm, I'm quoting dire directly from the paper here, you say that risk factors associated with this high-risk latest peak included high school heavy drinking, cigarette smoking, marijuana use, polyprescription drug misuse, white race, and not completing a four-year university degree. Uh, and reading between the lines of that, maybe we're getting a sense of uh, aspects of personality type and social circumstances, which are again risks. That's right. Yeah, we, we try to put these risk uh, factors together and really create a profile and also create uh, per potential pearls uh, for clinicians to pay attention to so that when they're sitting across from somebody, uh, they can know what questions to ask. One thing we've known uh, and seen in our own research and also the clinical work that's been done in our team is that people, they, they want to talk about this. They want to have, you know, conversations about their relationships to these medications. And we want them to be as healthy as possible. And if you, if you approach someone in a very non-judgmental way, uh, you know, n not using a term like misuse, I mean, this is used for this article, but typically when we talk to people, we use different language uh, when you're sitting across from someone. And they want to have these conversations uh, about, uh, you know, why they're using them in this way. And uh, it provides an opportunity to uh, oftentimes have a, a crucial conversation that will not only treat, uh, you know, their relationship to these medications uh, if they've gone, if they've turned to misuse, but also uh, whatever underlying condition that they're trying to manage on their own. And you've hit on something very important there, which is gaining people's trust and gaining people's confidence. Because, you know, it strikes me that, that if, we, if we zoom out for a moment and look at this broader picture of prescription drug misuse and, and the extent to which it is a problem in the United States and, of course, other countries, it's, it's also a crisis of confidence. You know, it's a crisis of confidence in uh, the medical profession. It's a crisis of confidence in uh, the government. It, it's a, a crisis of confidence in authority is, is really mixed up uh, with this, this whole rather lamentable situation. That's right. And, and people, especially the younger people, will look at these prescription drugs. They know that they're prescribed for legitimate reasons. And oftentimes their perceptions of these medications are that they're safe because they're uh, prescribed. And the, the one thing that health professionals have uh, going for them uh, is that uh, many of them are in a position to, uh, to interact with these uh, people who have, are starting to misuse these medications. You know, for years we thought these people were flying under the radar and that they weren't coming into contact with the health system. But uh, some of our other work suggests that that's not true, that, that many of these people do uh, interact with the, with the health system and other health professionals, and there are opportunities to screen uh, these individuals and, and have these crucial conversations. So if uh, you were to give advice to clinicians in terms of uh, helping young people who are experiencing problems with prescription drug misuse, where, where would you start? So I think one of the big take-home implications of this study and, and studies in this area 
is the importance of uh, screening uh, for, uh, in this age group, we, we focus mostly on the older adolescents and young adults, but also the adults as they age uh, out and they mature out. Uh, one thing we do know is that for decades here in the United States, there was overprescribing of many of these medications. And now the crucial you know, issue is as these beco- people become older, you know, just because the prevalence is dropping uh, nationally, we still have decades of people who were overprescribed medications, and it's our responsibility to follow these people as time goes on and to uh, help them develop strategies. So when I talk to clinicians and health providers, I encourage them to use uh, screening uh, in their settings and do it in a very non-judgmental way using perhaps uh, some, um, uh, you know, uh, examples, uh, maybe even in their own lives or uh, very non-judgmental language when they're talking uh, to patients, and also really understand what the motive is behind uh, when somebody does talk about using these medications on their own, uh, what their motive was for the misuse, and uh, taking a more holistic approach for uh, treating the individual. And sometimes when uh, we talk about or write about issues like this, I get emails from uh, family members who are concerned about their their sons or their daughters or their partners uh, who are experiencing these kinds of problems. What advice would you give there? Well, I'd I'd want to tell them that there is hope. Uh, you know that there are uh, quite a few people out there that are uh, struggling and you know spiraling out of control with these medications because you can get into trouble very quickly. And I would want to tell them that there, that, that there is hope and that there are uh, resources for them. Uh, there's uh, plenty of people in each community, uh, whether it's the U.K. or the United States, who are available to uh, talk to them, not just about their substance problem, but also about whatever condition they're uh, taking it upon themselves to try to self-treat. So there is hope, and hopefully we can begin to tackle this, this huge issue together. But it's not going to be easy. It's not, and it's going to be multifaceted. I mean, I talked about screening, but, you know, let's, let's really take a step back and understand that, you know, you're not going to be able to change uh, decades of, uh, of uh, having, you know, the overprescribing and some of these uh, unhealthy relationships with these medications by one or two simple fixes. Uh, it's a prescribing issue, so there's plenty of uh, prescribers that are now trying to tackle the issue of what is the right amount of these medications to prescribe. Uh, There's the issue of uh, monitoring, so especially in this age group. I mean, let's think about this transition from from adolescence to young adulthood is the age time, is the age period when people are becoming responsible for their own medication management. That is a crucial time. And we know that the leading sources of diversion during this age group are leftover medication and obtaining them from friends. So those two uh, diversion sources are especially key during this time when people are handling their own medication. So monitoring and coming up with innovative ways to monitor medication, whether that's you know using social media or even texting, or uh, you know we have plenty of uh, physicians that are trying to uh, come up with innovative ways to reaching young adults in this way. And then of course also disposal. Uh, if you go to any household in the United States that has controlled medication, about 90% of them are going to be easily accessible to adolescents and young adults, and that's a real problem, not just in the United States, but I think worldwide. Uh, and it also speaks to this need to 
shift our relationship with these medications, uh, not just at the individual level, but, but more at the uh, cultural and, and family level as well. Sometimes we're not just prescribing to the individual. Uh, these, these medications are going home with them, and oftentimes I really try to push. I, I have a background in social work, and I'm oftentimes try, trying to push people to understand that you are prescribing to a family when those medication reach that, reaches that house. Uh, you are truly prescribing to a family unit. So it's a complex question. It's a complex issue. Research like this is a good start. Sean McCabe, thank you very much. Thank you, Niall. I really appreciate you having me on the show today. It's, a, it's an honor to be with you. Thanks. And thanks also to you, the listener, for downloading this podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time. But for now, goodbye.